haven't met, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church and um, hope to meet you sooner than later. If you are new, excited to have you with us. I was just thinking, just even a couple of minutes ago, there, there's something humanizing about this Lord's Day thing that we do every seven days, isn't there? Because even that rhythm uh, means every seven days, uh, unless we seek to uh, excuse ourselves from spaces like these, we either at times bring our highest of highs into rooms like this, or we bring our lowest of lows into room, rooms like this, or we bring a gigantic mixed bag of emotions into spaces like these, and and yet it's good for us to do that, and God's really kind because every time we do it, um, we get two means of grace for sure, namely the preaching of God's word and the participation in the Lord's Supper, and I get to uh, run with one of those uh, as it pertains to preaching peace and hopefully set us up well for the other of those on the other side of our time in the scriptures this morning. And so I just wanna, I wanna get into that. Um, if, you, if you weren't here last Sunday, we launched a new sermon series that's gonna take us through the summer and then we're going to relaunch our walk through the book of Luke. We, we jumped into Luke right around Advent of last year and so... If you are new and you decide to stick around, I would encourage you this summer to spend a lot of time listening to old podcasts of Luke season one, and then we'll jump in when we get to the fall into part two of that series. But for now, uh, we're, we're gonna dive in, in the summer months into a series entitled Seven Deadly Follies, which is a look at the seven deadly sins as portrayed in the book of Proverbs. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And everybody's not coming back next week, right? You just realize that this is just a gut punch every single week of this series. I promise that on the other side of that, if you were with us in the Ecclesiastes series, you know that those sermons were about 40 minutes of devastation and then great hope for about five at the end of each of those sermons. It's gonna be a better ratio than that, but um, very similarly, we will dive into and, and look at the vice for itself and what it is, and then we'll see the, hopefully, the contrast of the virtue for what it is that um, Christ has uh, afforded us through the empowering of his Holy Spirit in our lives. Those seven sins, some of Lady Folly's most well-known nicknames to use the imagery of that poem that we looked at last week from Proverbs chapter nine, all incredibly familiar temptresses, having seduced people in every culture, every generation throughout human history, and yet unfamiliar in the sense that we oftentimes don't see them for what they truly are or the destruction that they, they bring. I mentioned this last week. There are surely more than seven sins, more than seven nicknames for Lady Folly, but, but those that have come to be known as the seven deadly sins, they're, they're surely among the most prevalent, acting as a sort of root system from which a, a multitude of sins shoot up. In the words of Jeffrey Chaucer's Parson from the Canterbury Tales, the seven deadly sins, he says, are the, the trunk of the tree from which others branch, all leashed together. That yes, on the one hand, we could say all sin's deadly and that all sin is rebellion against divine holiness worthy of divine judgment. But the seven, they, they help us to understand, at least in some sense, what's at the root that which forms that trunk from which the, the branches spring forth so that we can then do some war waging for the good of our own soul. John Owen, to bring back a quote from last week in the framing of this series, says, be always that it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
That yes, the war's already been run, won in Christ Jesus for us, the victory secure, and yet Christianity, it's not a peacetime endeavor. It is a war for the soul, daily, by the hour, by the moment even. That, as I said last week, Jesus died not only to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience. Romans 8, 13, Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you mortify the flesh, you will live. I make no mistake about it. It's not just about seeing the ugliness of the vices for what they are, though that's part of it, the poison filling the, the chalice that Lady Wisdom offers to us. But it's also about seeing and savoring the beauty of Jesus Christ for who he truly is the ultimate fulfillment of the book of Proverbs, wisdom personified in its purest form, his table spread with everything we need to satisfy us and bring us true and lasting joy. In other words, we're not simply talking with respect to this series about a fight for morality, but a fight for true and lasting happiness, seated at the all-satisfying table of Jesus Christ, Again, another quote from last week in trying to frame this series out, Marshall Siegel in his book, or, or a book actually that he contributes to called Killjoys, which is a commentary on the seven deadly sins. He says, Christianity is not merely or even mainly about correcting your bad habits, but about satisfying and fulfilling you in the deepest way possible, and therefore making God look as great as he is. Our hearts were designed to enjoy a full and forever happiness, not the pitiful temporary pleasures for which we're too prone to settle. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust are all woefully inadequate substitutes for the wonder, beauty, and affection of God. As first hopes or dreams or loves, they are killjoys by comparison to Christ. They will rob you, not ravish you. They will numb you, not heal you. They will slaughter you, not save you. He goes on to say, the map inscribed on our sinful soul will not lead any of us to truth, glory, or happiness. It will lead us in circles of almost and good enough until it sits by our hospice bed, holding our confused, disappointed, and hopeless hand as we drift off into hell. We have to wake up, he says. Scrap the old map, grab the compass pointing true north, trusting that the God who formed our hearts knows how to fill them. We have to fight for joy in the right places. Again, it's, it's this idea of Christian hedonism, giving up tin in order to obtain gold, doing everything we can to pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. That's why the, the subtitle of this sermon series is The Fight for Happiness in the Killing of Sin. The series is not just about refusing to, to raise a glass, so to speak, and toast our own death at the table of Lady Folly. It's about embracing a seat again at the table of the all-satisfying God. That's what we're going after for the next seven weeks as we fight to, to turn from the temptress, so to speak, and whichever of her seven deadly personas tend to allure us most and to say yes to the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God. And so I invite you this morning to open up to Proverbs chapter six, if you have a Bible, and I'll just go ahead and set you up right out of the gate. We're gonna be there for a blink, and then we're gonna be onward marching. As you know, most pastor preachers, uh, when attempting to tackle the book of Proverbs, uh, even the churches that believe in expository preaching, uh, by and large, 
Uh, when you get into Proverbs, tend to move into topical territory and try to give some sort of comprehensive grasp of whatever the topic at hand is and what the book has to say about it in a, in a comprehensive sort of way. And so we're gonna start with Proverbs 6 and then we're going to fly by the seat of our pants and look at, my guess would be upwards of 30 Proverbs or sections out of Proverbs and somehow still manage to get you out for brunch if you want. So let me, uh, let me pray for us and, and we'll jump into the scriptures together. God, thank you for your grace and kindness in establishing the rhythm of the Lord's day. Thank you for meeting us in our highest of highs, the lowest of lows, the in-betweens, the ebbs and flows of our lives with the means of grace that you offer us in the gathering of your church, even to hear the voices of your people collectively singing your praises, just food for the soul, Lord, including those little voices. What a blessing. I pray that we would be blessed through our time in your word this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to see sin for the ugliness that it truly is, myself included, that you would help us to see those virtues that represent your very heartbeat for the beauty that they are, Lord, and that we would walk out of here different and that you would be glorified in it all and the joy would be ours. Spirit of God, we're desperate for you to move in order for that to happen. So would you plead with you to do so? Father of lights, would you pour out your wisdom even now as we sit with your word in wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, and give us what we need so that we might honor you with our thoughts, our affections, our lives, with everything we are and everything that we have. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. So uh, on the one hand, uh, we, could, we could take the seven deadly sins in just about any order, right, as they each stand alone in their uniqueness in a sense, and yet pride seems to be as good a place to start as any, not only is it the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven, it's the sin that got our first parents kicked out of the garden as they went down the fallen path of self-determination, judicial autonomy, spiraling the universe into chaos and curse. Not to mention that pride is first in a list found in Proverbs chapter six of things that God hates. Look at Proverbs six, verse 16 and working through verse 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That list is, I mean, it's filled with some pretty heavy things, wouldn't you say? pertaining to the wickedness of sin. I mean, you have a list that includes the shedding of blood, the breathing of lies. And yet, what is it that tops that list? Haughty eyes. A proud look, according to some of your translations. Lady Wisdom herself, uh, Proverbs chapter eight, verse 13 says, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Again, pride topping the list, coupled with the word arrogance to ensure that we don't miss it. 
Going back to last week, it makes sense to, to start with pride because without humility before God, there is no wisdom. There's a danger in sophistication, a danger in unteachability, in refusing to acknowledge that there's a battle happening within us. Solomon exhorts us to, to see ourselves rightly, which requires humility, as does any hope of, of us seeing the Lord rightly, not just ourselves, that without humility, there is no hope, going back to last week, of an Aslan-like right view of God, a reverence before the great line of Judah. It's the key to sin-killing obedience. It's the key to the, the fight for true and lasting happiness. I mean, the scriptures, they're filled with endless teachings on the dangers of pride, right? Again, from our first parents in the garden to grumbling and complaining, idol-fashioning, wilderness-wandering Israel, not to mention the too-many-to-count Old Testament characters of pride-turned-tragedy, like Haman in the, the story of Esther, Nebuchadnezzar in the story of Daniel, and on and on we could go. And then there's the New Testament, Look no further back in the rearview mirror than just a couple of weeks ago as we saw the disciples arguing about which of them was the greatest. That after having seen the pride of the Pharisees numerous chapters into Luke's gospel account before we ever even got to that moment with Jesus' disciples. James tells us, James chapter four, verse six, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus himself teaches that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Matthew 23, 12. I mean, the truth is, we could dive into a 10-year-long sermon series on pride, and we would never run out of passages. And yet, at the same time, we don't even have to leave the book of Proverbs in order to see the contrast for what it is between pride and humility, one cup bitter, the other incredibly sweet. So what can we say about pride in, in terms of what God has to teach us through the book of Proverbs? Well, for one, we can explicitly call it sin. And not just because it's been declared to be one of the seven deadly sins, but because the book of Proverbs itself explicitly calls pride sin. Proverbs 21, verse four. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Simply put, a, a proud look is sinful, a proud heart is sinful. In, in other words, pride itself is an infinitely heinous crime against an infinitely holy God, a crime of cosmic treason worthy of an infinitely horrific punishment. Furthermore, it's so awful in the eyes of God that he's nicknamed people who walk in unrepentant pride. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-four: scoffer. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Now, one might argue there are far worse names to be called than to be declared a scoffer. Kind of sounds like a scallywag or something, like big deal. Sticks and stones, right? And yet, going back to last week, it's the scoffer that Proverbs chapter nine declares to be on a path to destruction. The one holding the, the poison-filled chalice to use that Proverbs nine imagery. It's why the, the book of Proverbs says elsewhere, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, Proverbs 18, 12. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing, Proverbs 29, 1. 
The pride comes before the fall. We, we didn't get that extra biblically. That actually came right out of the scriptures. Unless we think it's simply the, the universe dishing out karma, the book of Proverbs makes clear that that path to destruction, that's one of divine judgment, that God is operating and exercising there. The book of, of Proverbs showing us how God himself relates to the proud. Proverbs chapter three, verse 34, toward the scorners, he, the Lord, is scornful. Proverbs 16, five, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Pride is, it's a serious offense in the eyes of God because it, in the words of John Stott, contends for supremacy with God himself. I mean, most of us, most of us if we're honest, we know there's something deep down abhorrent about pride, off-putting when we encounter it in other people, right? And yet very few sins are more difficult to see in our own lives. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, pride is, quote, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. C.S. Lewis in his famous Mere Christianity says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit, he says, that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone, he says, who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice he says I am talking about is pride or self-conceit and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. I mean, we, we have an intuitive understanding that, that pride is, is vile and yet it's the very vice to which we're uh, most blind in our own lives, which is why the book of Proverbs uses the language of, of this danger of a, a certainty of one's own rightness. I'll give you a couple of examples. Proverbs uh, 21 verse two says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord knows what's true. Proverbs 30 verses 12 and 13, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, and this is the language of pride, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. I mean, it's, it's a pretty terrifying and sobering thought being blind to our own blindness, all the while so sure of our vision. Particularly when we, when we truly understand what pride does. Paul, if you, if you go to the New Testament, the church of Corinth, Paul talks to the Christians in that city about this danger of being puffed up. That word translated puffed up in the original Greek, it comes from the word fousiao. It literally means overinflated, bloated, or swollen. Conveying this idea of being filled with so much air that a person is ready to burst. That's what the human ego is, is like. It's like air filling the, the balloon of our being, which can only lead to a popping at some point, a destruction. Furthermore, it's an incredibly enslaving way to live, always fixated on ourselves. In Tim Keller's The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he, he makes this incredibly 
wise observation in, in stating that we oftentimes only notice our own body parts when there's something wrong with them. I experienced this a few months ago, bent my thumb back in a direction that thumbs aren't meant to go, and then all I could think about every hour of the day was that thumb. And Keller argues that's what the human ego is like. It's been bent back in a way it's not meant to go. That's the reason that we're constantly fixated on what others think of us. It's because the human ego, it's broken, it's fractured. Keller says, quote, The ego often hurts. That is because it has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. Think about it, he says. It is very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. That is because there's something wrong with my ego. There's something wrong with my identity. There's something wrong with my sense of self. It is never happy. It is always drawing attention to itself. Maybe you you can relate to that. I know I can. The truth is it's, it's a sad, enslaving way to live, always fixated on the self. Madonna was once quoted as having said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle, she says, has never ended, and I guess it never will. What a miserable way to live. Not only for the bondage it creates, the destruction that it brings, which is to see the poison in the cup for what it is, the one side of the, of the coin, but also because pride causes us to miss out on true freedom, true happiness that comes in seeing and savoring God rightly, relating to the Lord rightly. Again, without humility, there is no hope of an Aslan-like right view of God, in large part because pride and the knowledge of God, those two things cannot coexist. They don't, they don't commingle. Again, to quote Lewis, He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man, he says, is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That's incredibly insightful. I mean, pride not only has an enslaving, destructive effect on our lives, but it keeps us from seeing and savoring the one in whom true freedom is found, true happiness is found, true life is found. It's a poison that kills, and it's offered in the most alluring of chalices. In contrast, the book of Proverbs declares, this is where we get to the good stuff, Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is a right reverence toward God, is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29, 23, he who is lowly in spirit, there's your beatitudes language, will obtain honor. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. 
Proverbs 11.2, with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 18.12, humility comes before honor. That if pride comes before the, the fall, humility comes before the blessing. The blessing of wisdom, the blessing of honor, the blessing of life, the blessing of seeing ourselves rightly in the fight for our own happiness, the blessing of true freedom from bondage to our fragile human egos, the blessing of being freed from constantly looking for validation around the next corner, constantly being fixated on ourselves, the blessing of seeing the Lord rightly and the joy that, that comes in basking in his glory rather than chasing after our own. Going back to last week, the stakes are high. Whether we choose or not, the, the house of wisdom, so to speak, it's a matter of life and death. Going back to, to that poem from chapter nine, verse six, leave your simple ways, Lady Wisdom says, and live. That wisdom is calling out to all who will listen. I've got something so much better to offer you than the woman across the street. A seat at the table of humility in the presence of the all-satisfying God secured for us, mind you, through the humility of Jesus Christ himself. The very gospel itself revealing to us the humble heart of God. Philippians 2, verses three through eight, very famous passage of scripture. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel reveals to us the heart of God, the humility of God. Bruce Shelley in his book, Church, Church History in Plain Language, he says, Christianity, it's the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. That humility finds its origin in the very character, nature, and being of the God we worship. A God willing to stoop down into the arrogant slums of human history that he might live a life of perfect humility in our place, the life we couldn't live. A God willing to die the most humiliating of deaths in the public square that he might bear the sins of our pride in his body on the tree. Counted proud, Jesus was, so that the proud might be counted humble. My goodness. He experienced the land of the dead, to use that poetic imagery of last week, so that you and I might have life. We're invited to the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's a salvation that not only was secured through humility on Jesus's part, but it's a salvation that can only be received through humility. So that if you're not a Christian, I would not invite you, beg you to turn to Jesus, to use that, that Proverbs 9 language, to turn from your simple ways, to enter the house of wisdom, and to live And if you are a Christian, again, Christ not only died to secure our forgiveness, but our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, that we might know deeper, lasting, true happiness, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. Let me, let me, let me just re-evangelize us this morning by way of a quote that I shared a couple weeks ago. J.C. Ryle, 
He says, none has so little right to be proud as man, and of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. All that we have, all that we are, a gift of God's grace. So if we're gonna boast, we have nothing to boast in but the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us, it tells you and me, we're so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. That's humbling. And yet, we're so loved that he was glad to do it. That's so encouraging. Religion and irreligion, what do they do? They lead to pride or despair. Pride when you think you're doing whatever you're supposed to be doing. Despair when when you failed in your own estimation. Only the gospel can lead to confident humility. It's the gospel that that frees us to talk like Agur, the the author of Proverbs 30. These words, oh my goodness, I feel like they're my own right now as I read them to you. He says, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the, the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Those are the words of a free man. A man no longer in bondage to the fragile human ego. A man who, who understands in humility that a wise man can still be wiser that a righteous man can increase in learning. C.S. Lewis describes humility as, and I love these words, as feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Isn't that freeing? Don't you want that? Only the gospel can do that. It offers us the rest that comes in knowing that Jesus has secured our full and forever forgiveness while at the same time offering not just rest, but hope, a hope that comes in knowing that he, again, has secured our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, that that the Lord invites us this morning, exhorts us even to, to lose our foolish egos, myself included, for his glory, for the sake of our own freedom and joy to turn from the temptress that goes by the name of pride and to say yes again to the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God, the table of humility and the blessing of wisdom, honor, and life that comes with a seat at that table. A seat that, if you know anything of the gospel at all, we have no business occupying but for the grace of God. And so I, I just invite you to worship him now in a couple of ways as we do every Sunday post-sermon. One, through our song. And I pray that as we sing that, that even our posture would reflect what, what Lewis talks about, that, that we would just fix our eyes upwards as an acknowledgement that God is above us, one, so we wanna re- relate to him rightly, but two is an acknowledgement that we wanna set aside the the petty notion of looking down on other people. It's a both and sort of posturing. As you sing, I just encourage you to do that. Um, We're also gonna worship through the Lord's Supper. As I mentioned earlier, if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Uh, If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table there, right by the exit. 
Uh, we, we take the bread here representing the broken body of Jesus and we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to receive of that meal, just exhort you to pause for, for just a moment, for just long enough to consider the, the many exhibitions and examples of pride in your life along the way and to envision that sin put upon Jesus Christ while at the same time envisioning, envisioning the perfect humility of Jesus, you see it in the gospels, and considering that that, that humility has been reckoned to you by faith. Unbelievable. The gospel of Jesus Christ, where else can we go?